Hello, uh, welcome to the Influence Continuum. I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I am absolutely honored and delighted to have Lawrence Irwin Sugarman with me. He's a research professor at the Center for Applied Psychophysiology and Self-Regulation in the College of Health Sciences and Technology at Rochester Institute of Technology and clinical professor in pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Um, that's a mouthful, but man, are you qualified? I'm just gonna read a little bit more, Lawrence, before we get into it. Uh, over two decades of primary care pediatric practice, Dr. Sugarman refined clinical biofeedback and hypnosis strategies that effectively increase resilience and coping skills for young people and families. Based on this experience, he produced an internationally acclaimed video documentary, Hypnosis in Pediatric Practice, Imaginative Medicine in Action. At RIT, he is focused on how to best evoke the abilities of young people with autism spectrum disorder and other chronic health problems, investigates innovative digital health applications and and develops pedagogy for professional development and psychobiological care. With Dr. William Wester, Dr. Sugarman co-authored and co-edited the text, Therapeutic Hypnosis with Children and Adolescents, now in its second edition. His new book, co-authored with Julie Linden and Lee Brooks, is Changing Minds with Clinical Hypnosis, Narratives and Discourse for a New Healthcare Paradigm. He has authored dozens of professional papers and book chapters. So I'm going to stop there because it goes on and on. And I know you're a fiddle player and you're a Renaissance man. And we, if I remember correctly, met in Bremen, Germany at an International Society of Hypnosis Conference. And we were like, you're so cool. I think you're cool. No, I think you're cool. We got to talk more. And so the friendship has evolved and I just have so much respect for your, your, you know, your travels, your fellow travels uh, of trying to help people who are suffering to be more functional. And, you know, most people listening to this podcast know me because I talk about undue influence all the time and cults and bad actors and malignant narcissists, but I really want this episode to be hopeful and the ethical side of influence. And I'm talking about clinical hypnotherapy, not the stage hypnosis, you know, charlatan stuff, but where people have very strong ethical guidelines and practice and are empowering people to get well and to know themselves. So that's what I want to talk about. I really would like you to share with this, this our listeners, um, if you had your way, mm -hmm. what needs to change yeah. with the healthcare system and particularly with, with mental health care? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, we, we do have a mutual admiration society, so that's good, of two. Though I think, I think we could include our wives probably in that. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely, my, definitely the dogs. Um, yeah, well, I like that framing. Um, uh, and I, I think I ought to start by saying what, what inspired me about what you just said was that it actually is hard to maintain that ethical leaning, uh, that just for review, yes, 
ethical canons that developed starting with the Nuremberg trial, really, and then through Helsinki Accords and then into the World Health Organization. All of this, all of this stuff towards saying, wait, let's have some guidelines for research and practice is 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 just getting to be around 60 to 70 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is is hard because it involves separating one's own needs and desires for the other from their needs and desires. It's the essence of good parenting to separate the needs of the parent from that of the child. So the four ethical canons are uh, um, non-maleficence, which is translates as many people know into do no harm it's a pretty low standard it's kind of like saying listen i promise you your car won't be in any worse shape when you come to pick it up later right (laughs) that's that's a low standard but it's actually very hard because if um you if the physician just read this drug ad or uh is feeling somewhat rushed that moment or uh, is uh, his mind is their mind is elsewhere. Um, they may not be giving the fullest attention to what that person needs. And that is harm. Yes, yeah, for sure. And I'm, we have, to, I want to just add the healthcare system rewards doctors for having minimal time doctors like yourself Mm-hmm. And not doing the therapy, deep dive, you know, tell me about what's going on in the big picture of your life, but very symptoms. Well, let me add a wrinkle to that, which is that being person-centered, which we'll need to talk more about, creates efficiencies, not takes more time. Uh, over the long run, it creates great efficiencies. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the trance of the encounter. The second principle is beneficence, which is to do good, which is just as slippery. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, I believe we do the second, the third and fourth principles least well among developed countries and the data supported. One is respect for autonomy. And respect for, for autonomy actually in its purest form translates into the person in your care needs to know as much about their health condition as as the clinician does, in addition to what the clinician doesn't know. Right. So in other words, you're talking about psychoeducation as a part of the approach. Yes. But I'm going to push back every time you say mental or psycho as if it can be separated from the body. So we'll we'll come back to that. I too. love it because you're a, you're an MD <laughs> and I'm understand, a, under, I'm a no, counselor. But, but understand that the mind is embodied, and we'll talk about that along with. And the fourth principle is uh, respect for justice. And respect for justice means no matter who you are, where you came from, you deserve all of the rest of those, uh, the application of those ethical canons, and um, that means accessible, high quality care for everybody. And so we won't talk yeah. more about, I don't, I don't want to waste time talking about the well-known uh, economic and political um, 
disparities in healthcare in the United States um, and the system that perpetuates it. But I simply, those are the ethical canons. And, and if we call hypnosis, as I do, a uh, group of skills that rise to the level of a discipline, that rise to the level of an art. And by discipline, I don't mean a, a separate branch of knowledge like chemistry or biology. I mean a discipline as in the practice of skills that that end up infusing themselves into your interactions, then, then hypnosis is at the core of all of our clinical interactions because, okay. yeah, because I, we're influencing people. Right. And I just want to re remember that there are probably listeners who have this stereotypical thing of a watch going back right. and forth where right. someone's commanding. And what you're talking about is such a evolutionarily yeah. more advanced, sophisticated understanding of human consciousness. And right. I want people to really understand this is a paradigm changing model right. that you're proposing. Right. right. Don't try to fit this into previous boxes in your mind about well, hypnosis, as, please. Yeah, as a matter of fact, as um, I read recently, if you if you make false assumptions about somebody's theory or orientation and then try to fit them in, uh, m my friend Marcel Guiston used a wonderful um, metaphor. It'd be kind of like trying to follow a recipe when the ingredients are labeled food and produce, Great. as if they're as if they're interchangeable. Right. I, and I love so that. So your your meaning of consciousness, another person's meaning of consciousness, and my meaning of consciousness, let alone hypnosis needs to be more accurate. Um, so let me say a bit about that misconception. Please. So um, th th human beings, as you are, as you know more than I do, influence each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we are designed for influence. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my students, this is a post-it note on the wall. Let me reach it. Hold on a second. Mm -hmm. One of my students gave me this great quote. I uh, a little a little bit of a story, but it's worth it. Please, um, and and I'm and I I may be uh, uh, sabotaging my own teaching efforts because I teach a course at RIT on placebo research on what we will do in our own embodied mind when we think it's because of that procedure or that pill, mm -hmm. and uh, that's a fascinating area. There are some amazing research labs around the world doing this. And there is a final exam in the course. And the final exam actually is uh, your choice of three essays from a choice of from a list of five questions. And the one of the questions is, how come human beings evolved? What is the evolutionary advantage of believing that we don't control our own mind? That believing that a placebo helps us instead of the evolutionary advantage for it seems to me right. being able to say i control this why did we learn why did we learn to externally attribute our non-conscious mind and we say as a footnote we do that all the time i got a headache actually unless a flying axe hit you in the head you actually created that headache. It's not irresponsible. It's just that it's non-conscious. Um, or the more common 
in throughout Western languages. That made me so mad. You make me so mad. This weather really depresses me. Who's in charge of your emotion? Your externally, the externally attributed are non-conscious mind. So the question is, write about that based on what we've studied and read the course. Here is the quote. Uh, the guy, he could have just written this sentence instead of a thousand words, and I would have given him credit. We didn't evolve to externally attribute our own abilities. We evolved to use relationships in order to activate them. That's beautiful. It's a, and as a matter of fact, it's a very positive statement. And so the issue is that human beings are designed to change each other's minds. We've already talked about the ethical canons and we, you've already drawn the border that we're not intentionally going to the dark side today. Right. But, so the question becomes, what is the highest form of that involvement? And as uh, and I, there are a number of theses that say actually hypnosis evolved from ancient times when there were deities and gods talking with us or we felt they were. And then we tried to reenact that in our our religious uh, ceremonies, and then we developed proto-sciences, etc. And we still kept this basic idea of you be passive, and I will, and listen to my words, and basically recreating uh, the ancient religious practices. And that's how hypnosis is portrayed. And the first book to outsell the Bible in Western culture was Du Maurier's Trilby, which was about the evil Svengali, the probably Semitic Svengali, who, uh, you know, abused this woman using hypnosis for money. Uh, and that was the 1880s. And then there are all of those, the popular culture about the abuse of hypnosis. But it all involves, and oh, and I should say the professional training still involves that it's introductory and intermediate levels, the notion of you, quote, get this person into trance, right? And they become relatively passive and suggestible. Yep. And then this is the Western biomedical model. And then you develop specific, quote, suggestions, unquote, that treat their disorder. Mm -hmm. their irritable bowel syndrome, their headache, et cetera. What are good suggestions for treatment of as if diagnoses are real and people are not? That's that, fundamentally uh, the issue of the biomedical model. That's so fascinating. And I'm with you on an abstract intellectual level, but I also know too many people in my family with IBS Mm -hmm. And I've been telling them, instead of all of the treatments they're getting, try hypnotherapy, well, because it's very responsive. Yes. And, and well, I'm glad you used that word responsive. We're going to get to that in a moment. Please. So all of the funding, all of the stru power structure that supports hypnosis research says, well, it's got to be reproducible. You have to have a method that you can go do over and over and over again, because that's what creates good science and good 
evidence, which becomes data, which becomes right. uh, effect and translates to the, quote, bedside, quote. But the fact is that the evidence also shows that the more we tailor that approach to the needs of the subject, the more effective it is as compared to one size fits all. Here's the protocol for doing hypnosis for adults with irritable bowel syndrome. 100%. So that's when new are the evolution of the science of the mind, cognitive uh, uh, neuroscience, studies of psychobiology, teach us that the notion, this word trance, which many scientists don't want to use, I like it, it's one word, it's one syllable, it's old. Trance becomes separable from the notion of hypnosis. What if we call trance a, not a state, but a process? And the process is a process of discovery, of, of curiosity. How about in, when we say trance, everybody thinks of eyes closed, passive, maybe eyes wide open, maybe seeming in another state. Let's replace that with the experience of being creative, mm. the experience of saying, whoa, I've never thought of that before. What, do we, what if we replace it with being in a creative process mm -hmm. and call it a process? The evidence is that novelty, surprise, ambiguity um, inputs that the reference librarian who lives in our hippocampus this has nothing <laughs> to do with memories. the fact uh -huh. this has nothing to do with the fact that my mother was a librarian the reference librarian who lives in our camp hippocampus says i don't have anything on this we're going to have to open a new library section <laughs> right and let's put trauma in the restricted section uh -huh. that that we don't go to very often mm -hmm. if Trance is the process of becoming changeable, plastic, creative within the embodied mind because it affects our posture, our facial blood flow, our what our eyes do, our orientation to the environment. If we call that trance, then of course that comes on the way to the doctor and the way to the clinician. Oh, and by the way, if the last time you went to the, this particular doctor, strange, interesting things happened and you felt better and you weren't even sure why, doesn't that set up the next visit? Mm -hmm. So that's why I said earlier, this becomes quite efficient if one expects to come to the clinician. I'm going to use the broadest term I can. Good. Um, the, I don't want to use provider because uh, it's more than provision, but the and therapists, everybody thinks is mental health. So I'm going to say clinician. Uh, uh, if if the person in care comes to the clinician saying, okay, here I go, it's going to be a ride. I'm going to learn good stuff. I'm going to feel better. Well, I've done a, a half of my work in just setting that up. So we'll call that, that's what we'll call trance, the plasticity, the ability that all of us have from, from the most physically or intellectually or socially 
different and struggling mm-hmm. to the most adaptable of us. We all can change and we all know that individual process. If that's what we're going to call trance, then hypnosis is the use of our interaction. I'm using that rather than just language because language, the actual lyrics, maybe 7%. The tone of voice, the pacing, probably around 30%. And the rest is physical posture, Hmm. eye contact on both parties' part, the clinician. And if we use, if we say the managing of that, the intentional, cognizant use of that interaction to drive that plasticity in a beneficial direction that promotes wellness, promotes comfort, yep. which we need also to define, and promotes the ability of that person to continue using their skills more independently and autonomously, that's hypnosis. Empowering people to think for themselves and and make their own decisions for their lives. And I'm going to call that, Steve, the, the, the surface. And beneath that is the ability to say, wait, what is that feeling? Oh, God, do I need to feel that right now? Or can I set that aside and feel it later? Mm-hmm. And, and um, wait, I'm letting what this person would want me to do get in too much. I need to put them aside. The agility to do that is what I will call self-hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not alone in saying that. So that hypnosis becomes not a linear ritual of first listen to my voice, watch the swinging watch, et cetera, right. et cetera. But it becomes, and this is what I'm teaching in my workshops and in my mentoring practice, how to have really interesting and weird conversations. Right. And it's much more fun. And finally, it's person-centered. It is based on, I won't know what how to respond to you until I watch what you do. Yep. And so and that's I, hypnosis to me. And I'd like to just say for our listeners that we both have been uh, influenced by Milton Erickson, the founder of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, who was the person that first I understood was saying each person is their own world and we need to figure out how to enter our client's world and help them to fix themselves or to find out what the healing steps are. That, and that doesn't mean, well, it's your problem. Right. (laughs) Fix it. It doesn't mean that it, it goes further. Mm -hmm. I think so before, Really, before Erickson and his primary student, the one who helped him write the most and who became one of my mentors, Ernest Rossi, um, is before them, the notion was, I am the clinician. And as I mentioned before, I know the right suggestions or the right hypnotic approach or the right general therapeutic approach to this condition. Um, I'm going to say something very blasphemous now. I love saying it. Um, Please. Uh, it's Diagnoses are things we made up. They're models. 
Yep. They are the basis for reimbursement in the Western system. Right. They are the basis for whole bodies of knowledge and discipline. And we made them up. How people, how an individual comes to a given diagnosis is much more interesting than whether they meet the criteria for the diagnosis. And nobody always meets the criteria for the entire diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So by knowing, by what you said about Erickson appreciating the world, it's more than that. I'm pulling back with my hands for those who are only listening. The curtain yeah. to say, it's actually discovering what their resources are. Mm -hmm. How, what are you good at? How do you do that? So there are countless stories of Erickson and people talking about gardening when we're trying, when the person came to them with pain or the person, or I have multiple examples of, of young people who meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder. Notice how I didn't say they have it. I'm, they meet I'm really glad you're touching on that because it's well, such a misunderstanding. Who, who come in and say, can we, can we talk about narrow gauge rail in the Southwest? <laughs> and the and their mother wants them to stop torturing their sister, right? And or banging them, their head. Yeah, exactly. And my response is absolutely, because that's where their resources are, and it's not up to me to discover how they're going to use narrow gauge rail in the Southwest to be more tolerant and to soothe themselves differently. It's up to them to figure that out, and it'll be very. I'm excited about the creativity with which they will do that. It is up to me to be a person who just loves what they're learning and who they are. And tell me what neuro gauge rail is. Narrow, narrow in the South. I narrow, learned this from a kid. I'm sorry. I learned this from a kid with autism who, be, who is, who I didn't know it was a thing. So I use that as my favorite example because I, I learned, I, he, he walked right up to me and said, are we going to talk about narrow gauge rail in the Southwest? And I had to process just like you did over a few microseconds. Okay. Uh, yes, we are. <laughs> yeah. And that right? means he's into trains and a bunch yep, of people yep, yep. get focused and on specific things that become a tool to amplify. a sense of competency right. and efficacy. And that's what we want. And can we loan it? to uncomfortable novel social settings that are that with which you suffer. Right. Everybody who I see and you see and any clinician sees already has all of the resources they need for helping themselves find comfort. Our job is to help them mind them and apply them. And, um, there are lots of words that are used for that, but that's what I'm, how I'm going to say it. And, um, and no, uh, I don't mean they can manufacture their own chemotherapy. I didn't say they can perform surgery on themselves. I mean their own abilities for comfort. And that word comfort, which I said I'll define in a moment, yeah. I, this is what I do with everybody in my care at some point, usually in the first or second visit. Yep. I ask them what that word means and they say relax or they sit back in the chair and act it out or take a deep breath. And I say, yeah, that's that can be, I guess. And then I introduce them to the field of etymology, which I really like, because when we learn the derivation of the words we use 
suddenly their meaning deepens. And the same thing for people who learn multiple languages. And we won't talk right now about what that does to the embodied mind, but that's a thing too. So calm is uh, from Latin, calm and con, which means with. And interestingly for human beings, uh, I that's the only species I've ever been. So um, that means with has a dual meaning because we human beings are tool users. So it means an association. Right. And it means use. Um, I went to the movie with my sister and, and she drove. Mm -hmm. right? So that's association use. I, I drove the nail into the wall with my sister. No, no, not with my sister, with a hammer, but it's my hammer. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's the calm. And then I asked the young people in my care, especially if I know they play an instrument and I say, what's that word at the top of the musical notation that notation that, it's about playing really, really quiet. And they say piano or pianissimo. And then I say, what's the word for playing loud, powerful, strong? And they say forte. And I say, right, because it's the same Latin derivation as in comfort. So what right. does comfort mean? And they realize, oh, with power. Mm. That's what I mean by comfort. And that is a hypnotic experience. It's a little light bulb. It's not a big epiphany. It's right. a little light bulb that leans them forward towards, oh, so with power, what's that mean? And I say, you can perform on stage with power, with comfort. You can climb a rock wall with comfort. Right. You can talk about narrow gauge trains in the Southwest with comfort. Right. I just want for my listeners who have been in cults and other abusive things, Mm -hmm. To understand when you were saying that a person has all the resources they need within themselves, yeah. um, that you were talking from a clinician point of view in terms of empowering the, the, the person. Um, but we need each other sometimes. If we get stuck, like I needed my family's intervention to hire former Moonies to sit me down and cry and beg me to listen with an open mind because they were worried about me. And I wanted to prove yes. I wasn't in a cult and I wasn't brainwashed. So I was going to throw my parents a bone by agreeing to listen to these ex-member apostates. But essence, it helped me. Yeah. Yes. The essence of our work involves expressing more faith in that person than they feel. Great. That's, That's wonderful. It. And it's not just expressing. You know, when I teach this stuff, uh, people who have been through their training in, in, as a mental health counselor or as a clinical psychologist or as a physician assistant or as a physician or as a nurse practitioner say, oh, yes, they taught us about active listening, taught us about all the all the machinations of looking like you're paying attention. And I say, wait, I don't know about you, but I can't watch a person's face, eye movements, muscle tension, posture, while listening to the music of their voice, while processing the meaning of the lyrics they chose. I can't do that and fake it. <laughs> I, When I'm doing that, I really look curious and like I'm listening because I am. It's authentic. 
And that's the critical issue, yeah, and the it's authenticity you, you, of that. And you have the ability to focus, but also trust your unconscious to be taking yes. in information that your limited yes. conscious mind is overwhelmed by. That's what you were describing. Exactly. Uh, uh, I am going to misquote and paraphrase Milton Erickson, but he was asked probably many times uh, whether what he was doing was idiosyncratic and intuitive. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if by intuition you mean my ability to attend to the, my own, my own non-conscious processes, then of course it is. Mm -hmm. But that's what it ought to be. So I, I, yes, your, I like your framing at the beginning that clinical hypnosis done well means evoking a person's own agency in really creative ways and modeling that as the clinician. Uh, the, uh, I really think the mantra on all clinicians' walls should be, I don't know, let's find out. Great. And I also, I think we share how important it is for therapeutic alliance. That's a buzzword mm -hmm. for clinicians, but just that joining, that therapeutic togetherness. In the same way that, you can, that I don't know how to fake really paying attention to somebody, uh, in, in our book, I, I, I had a problem with it, this notion of therapeutic alliance of, of the therapeutic relationship. And I uh, and Julie and Lee and I came up with the, the term the clinician's trance. Mm -hmm. Now remember, we meant trance as a process, not a as state. a creative as a creative process of developing psychobiological plasticity. And so the clinician's trance it starts with having a beginner's mind. I, I'm going to put aside the fact that this person has these diagnostic labels. I can, I know them. I, I, that's off to the side. Let me figure out how they do it. A beginner's mind that, and, and I have a, in my presentations, I have a slide where little thought bubbles appear on the, around the side. It says, what's for lunch? How long is this going to go on? Are they going to get to this? And putting all of those, the process, the ongoing process of setting that aside to focus with childlike wonderment on right. how do you work? I trust that I will develop hypotheses that can be tested in our interactions. Right. And I trust that whenever I see them struggling a bit, when they com stop completing a sentence yeah. because some something inside put the brakes on, I trust I will know how to respond to keep pushing that forward. The clinician's trance also involves by evocation, we mean some challenge, some provocation. Yeah. So because we know that secure attachment, which I think we mirror or mimic or re-evoke, or maybe evoke for the first time in the clinician trance, is, is one of resilience. So it could be a poke, it could be a joke, it could be a challenge when they say, well, I can't because that never works. Really? My most common line is, if you say so. 
I yeah. use that a, annoyingly a lot. As a matter of fact, or at I've the used, moment you feel this way. Well, yes, but but that's less challenging and less right. provocative. So, uh, I, I, so, uh, so I have a young man in my care who actually has developed a hand signal for if you say so. So because he, he's tired of hearing me say it, <laughs> <laughs> and he knows, and I'm in his head, so I feel very successful. Right, he knows. If you say so, and and it haunts him, and that's my work mm -hmm. uh, right there. That so that the respect shown of another person's ability to take it, mm -hmm. but not but done out of affection, done out of faith in them. Yep, as compared to. Uh, Close your eyes, relax your body, count back from so-and-so, and listen to my words. And then they may say something like, uh, if there's anything I say that isn't quite right, you can not hear it or change it in your mind. That's very nice. But there are two problems with that approach, two big problems, which is I literally am being ignorant if I'm the clinician there. By ignorant, I mean I don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And second, if that person is passively sitting there, maybe nodding, maybe intoning a little bit now and then, that person is doing that. I've got little to work with. Right. But if that person's talking with me and using their hands and using gestures and using the whole the whole music yep. <laughs> of and and dance and lyrics of a conversation. I've got lots of material to work with. I totally agree. Lot. So I, that's why hypnosis is a, a evocative, weird conversation and can be taught that way from the beginning. Well, I was going to say, you know, I've been uh, I first got interested to, in hypnosis uh, in terms of attending neuro-linguistic programming training of Bandler and yeah. Grinder and people. Yeah. And then when I realized it was an amoral approach and I didn't like they were training salesmen and CEOs, yeah. like Tony Robbins learned NLP and franchised it on his own. And his, right. So let me backtrack to the other thought that I've been wanting you to talk about. You were talking about the clinician's trance yeah. of being curious and and one of wonder and full attention uh, on the person. But can you contrast your idea of trance with elite athletes preparing to perform or flow states or highway um, hypnosis, what's called well, highway so, hypnosis? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's contrast. So the flow states, the getting ready to perform, that is aligned beautifully with what we're talking about. So, and can, so imagine that, um, and I've had this wonderful opportunity. I the opportunity to uh, work uh, with, to play with, in their mind, somebody at that cutting edge, right? And I just it it it, it feels exactly like I'm the sorcerer's apprentice, only better than Mickey Mouse in Fantasia because I don't <laughs> mess it up. But but um, you know. They have this amazing power, and I get to add ideas and and use the relationship to 
more structure and discipline their rehearsal. And the rehearsal is not just cognitive. Right. The rehearsal has to be emotional. And yeah. the rehearsal, re, rehearsal is, is, is feeling the body in space. Right. Or feeling just the right touch on the keyboard or the strings right. or the ball. Right. Or the club or the bat or what. So that is a rehearsal of uh, a rehearsal of, of um, the term I'm trying to remember is is kind of the, the deepening the rut in the best sense of that word of, yes, I know how to do this with comfort and uh, uh, and feeling the outcome. I aiming for the outcome of it. Right. That is a, a plastic process. The, the as Norman Deutsch writes about the plastic paradox is that the first time you go down this snowy hill on the sled, you go down really slowly. Right. But then you carefully go up the top of the hill and aim for those same ruts because then you get to go faster and faster. That's how our brain works. As long as we can also remember that we can create new ruts whenever we want. That's the best. That's a great. I just want to say he wrote The Brain That Changes Itself and there's a yep. documentary. Yep. And for all of my work, Lawrence, it's a crucial teaching I have to do with my clients because, right. I don't know, 20 years ago, we realized wow, we have neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. All our lives. Before, it was not a thing. But I, yep. but experientially, right. I knew it was a thing. But, but once I had that frame, and to tell people, hey, you can rewire your own mind. You don't have to yep. keep reliving traumas from yep. the past. So I, I think that term highway hypnosis is a terrible term for mm -hmm. hypnosis. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Okay. That has to do with being mindless. Uh huh. Uh, that has to do with saying, "Wow, my body is driving the car." That has to do with being non-conscious, and and that the non-conscious stuff that does stuff well does that fine. But please, let's not. But hypnosis is the term we are using, mm -hmm. not for a state and not for trance, but being influenced by oneself and by others. And Great. in the clinical sense, doing that under those ethical canons. So doing something automatically without having to think about it is the old use of the word hypnosis uh -huh. and, and, and not the, the most useful clinical framework, which is doing new things. Right. And, discovering your non-conscious potential. You, I, that reminds me of something you said earlier. I, I said suggestion and put it in quotes, and then you said responsive. Um, and so uh, Dan Short, in his wonderful writing about Ericksonian hypnosis, so-called, and, and conversational hypnosis, makes a really important distinction between suggestibility and responsivity. In classic traditional linear ritual hypnosis, which I've talked about and obviously am biased against um, as a general treatment. Um, we're interested in suggestibility. Will that hand move because I've told you the hand will move? 
will those eyes close? Um, will you think about what I'm asking you to think about or imagine right. it? That's suggestibility. It's behavioral compliance or at least compliance. Mm -hmm. Responsivity is, wow, if you say so. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? In responsivity, we are much more interested in what the question does than what the answer is. Right. I'm it's eliciting not, yeah. reactions and we're it, tuning it, in. Well, even more, it is evoking plasticity. Uh -huh. It is evoking. So so Zen Cohen's are about responsivity. What's the, what's the sound of one hand clapping? What that question does mm -hmm. is create, is cause the reference library in the hippocampus campus to say, I got nothing. <laughs> we got to make something up. Mm -hmm. And we're very interested in how we make something up. Right. So our time is fleeting, but I need you to please talk more about how the embodied mind, ah, that there's no separation yeah. of mind and body, which is what we've been plagued with this. Yeah. This. Well, De Descartes made a deal with the church and said, would you please let me do dissection if I don't touch the soul? Uh, that's a huge oversimplification, but it works for uh, now. Um, and it, it, unfortunately, for those people who want to exclude this, it includes having to deal with the idea of consciousness. Mm -hmm. how, do, uh, how do we create a psyche out of material? Uh, the, the answer is, I don't know, but we do. Right. And We are. And, yes. <laughs> so the way I like to explain it to my um, undergraduate students at RIT who, you know, uh, never knew a world without computers that you can hold in your hand. Mm -hmm. um, when I was 14, I went, I did a summer science program at a major uh, research center and they had a computer. It took up a building. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I probably had, anyway, had punch cards I, and reels. Yes, I, I told them, I told the <laughs> students, listen, when I... I bought my first Radio Shack Tandy computer in 1985, and it had no hard drive. It was just a box with a CPU. You loaded the operating system on a floppy drive, then you loaded what you were going to, you know, your your word processing or your spreadsheet right. thing, and black and white and blinking stuff, and the disk operating system, etc. It was a CPU, a brain with no body. Right. But the fact is, the information storage system is our body. And I, right now, look how I'm holding my hands. Yeah. I do that when I want to feel comfortable. If I want to feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, I do this. Because I've been playing the banjo since I was seven. Mm. And my left palm up, of cradling a neck of a banjo or a fiddle or guitar, and my right hand palm down tells the Golgi tendon organs in my joints and the muscle tension and everything back to my brain. My brain says, oh, I know that. The reference librarian, very familiar with that. You're comfortable and competent. It's how I evoke my own abilities mm -hmm. in situations like this recording and this mm -hmm. talk. I want to be at my best. And the thing I've done longest and no best is playing the banjo. And you're so, good at it because you played for me yeah. <laughs> and my wife. So that's how it works. Mm -hmm. That's embodied. Yeah. 
and are not and and what is embodied is by definition non-conscious so if we're going to interact with somebody to evoke that vast wealth of non-conscious abilities we have to do it with their body the mind is embodied and there's wonderful emerging science to show this but we perpetuate it in our language this dualism so we say mental health versus physical health which doesn't exist and we say psychological or biological which doesn't exist those divisions and you cannot ethically treat a person and limit yourself to that joint or that part of the body or just their thinking except that's and, the way it's evolved and it's to our peril and why so, people right. are so unhealthy it's it's maleficent Maleficent. It's not non-maleficent. Good. It's maleficent. And that's why it's so hard. Right. So I we're going to need to wrap up soon, but I can't help but ask you if you had a chance to talk to the president of the United States and the National you know, uh, Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health and say, with this pandemic, this is what we need to do to train yes. people. What would you say? Yeah. Other than hire me, maybe. Oh, no, probably not. Um, I, would, I would say we need to recognize that people's understanding themselves, their, uh, their sense of self, their sense of efficacy and coping runs their immune system. Mm. How you believe in the vaccine affects its response. Not perhaps at a level between the first type of COVID we saw and, and Delta, but increasingly. How at, what I show in my classroom is a photograph a student of mine took of O'Hare mm -hmm. at the international terminal just as Trump was closing things down. There are hundreds of thousands of people in view, packed together, all sleep deprived, having arrived on international flights. About the best Petri dish for a virus you could imagine. Right. And that, it, I'm not saying it could have been avoided. I'm not engineering it. I'm simply saying, there it is. There is ignoring the embodied mind. Yeah. So I that we have to shift to, this is what I'd say because I could get their attention, we need to shift to a loving response to this. Mm, a loving response. Yeah. So uh, you, I know you mentioned you're studying placebo effect and along, uh, not along, but the other side of that continuum is nocebo effect, which is the yeah. deleterious effects. Yep. And I just want to say before you respond, that when I was lying, getting ready to have my vaccinations for COVID, I kept hearing from family and friends, oh, you're going to have a really terrible reaction. I was knocked out for days. And I was cognizant enough through my life skills to be like, no, my body's going to love it. I'm yeah. not going to have anything but a very minor, you know, point of injection reaction, if anything. And that's what I had, a minor yeah. point of discomfort <laughs> for all three shots. 
Yeah. I had my booster I, I, too. Knocked me flat because I said, I really want this thing to work. And I know it'll work if I have a fever and I really am wiped out. And I was, and it worked. And you so made far. it work. So you yeah. believed it. So so <laughs> I, I, I'll simply say that that I, I prefer not. I, I, uh, a researcher named Mormon said, let's get rid of this placebo, nocebo. Let's call it all meaning effect. Meaning and I think that's effect. much more accurate. The I like meaning, that. Yes. It is the meaning and meaning in turn in narrative and every meaning is a lovely term for how we change our embodied minds mm -hmm. in response to conditioned prompts mm -hmm. of others. So, and so we could switch to that clinician's trance to say the clinician's watching and saying what's the meaning of all of this to you mm. how do you what do you make of this right and how do i help you coach you guide you towards using that for wellness and for self-efficacy and autonomy i think that's what erickson and rossi um brought into the field and by field i mean of helping other people be healthy that's great and as we wrap up um, I know that we you, you've done presentations at hypnosis society conferences on uh, anxiety being one of the major problems with folks on the spectrum yeah. and teaching them how to regulate their anxiety potentially through um, digital games maybe or mm -hmm. some other ideas. Can you yeah. say anything about that? Well, um uh, Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S, who, um, whose first major book was um, uh, the polyvagal theory, right. it, it posited um, that that we could understand a whole host of of health conditions uh, in terms of the psychobiology, and if, and it's and especially in terms of the autonomic nervous system and the what's called the parasympathetic system or the vagus, what the system run by the vagus nerve. And it's so it neatly fits into the understanding of autism being perhaps uh, uh, a difference in vagal nerve tone and construction such that it feels one feels more anxious, but also feels less socially in tuned and engaged. What's interesting is that using uh, biofeedback training, lots of ways of training to increase a vagal tone mm -hmm. decreases that anxiety, decreases the response. And there are lots of ways to increase vagal tone and there are lot and, and lots of ways to attach imagery like narrow gauge rail in the Southwest right. to that. So that, um, and, and, as long as we can give people back the, the data that is being derived from EEG or heart rate variability or muscle tension or sweat gland activity, if we send that back to them, that's what biofeedback is, and help them move it in more useful directions, they have some baseline autonomic hardwired control on which to build change in emotion, change in thinking. And so um, that ability to tune those, those signals is um, something that we studied a lot at RIT and actually resulted in a patent of tuning 
bio, multiple biofeedback systems to whatever is the best one for the user to use. It's oh, like positive great. psychology and an algorithm. It's wonderful. Right? So machine learning can allow digital therapeutics as potentially to be a super therapist by tailoring what it gives you to what allows you to change the best. Now we're going to need to do another, yep. another one getting into this because we all we're hearing in the media is all the negative AI algorithms yep. that are yep. causing people to be addicted to their demise and to the demise of their careers and their relationships right. And even getting them sucked into radical but we, groups. But we can drive, we can use it to drive creativity. Right. And that's for me, that's the hope is our yeah. creativity, our humanity, our compassion, our yes. desire for human rights for all, and rule of law to support each other's wellness, even if they have different religious beliefs than we do or different political beliefs than we do. We can all be human beings together on the yeah. same planet Earth. Yes. Um, last, and we words, have to be. last words to you, Dr. Sugarman. Well, I, <laughs> delight. It's, uh, well, that last summary from you is why we are brothers from another mother. So I, that's all I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll add. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I continued success. And I promise you we'll, we'll come back to you to talk more about healthy, uh, healthy applications of biofeedback that can help teach people to be more fully actualized or functional and more socially competent and not yes. isolated by being on screens and right. afraid to interact with humans. Yes. Right? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website, freedomofmind.com. There you will find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at CultExpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend reading my books, Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. Thanks for listening.